Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Hello and welcome to episode 116 of the Nerdfest podcast. This week's nerds are... Dan Watkins, Sean Farthing, Andy Chandler, Peter Jobs, and I'm Hazel Chandler. We actually had to point at each other, Spider-Man style, to work out who was going next. <laughs> We're normally sat roughly in the order that we speak in. <laughs> Not today. On today's show, we will be discussing some new films and TV shows that have captured our attention, including some group chat about She-Hulk and House of the Dragon, and our own personal picks, including Sandman, Prey, Bad Sisters, Stay On Board, The Leo Baker Story, and Nude Tuesday. (laughs) Leave it to Dan to lower the tone. So let's get started. Yeah, we are actually recording on a Tuesday. And I mean, this was going to be the introduction to my recommendation, ah. but you've stolen both of my intros. <laughs> okay. Is that is that why you're nude? Yes. Ah, okay. I was going to lead into it, but yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you we ruined did, it, we, John. We did wonder. Like you ruin everything. I mean, you say it's ruined, but I can see a bit here that <laughs> says it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to talk about your successful fringing? Our successful fringing, mm, yes. yes. Three of us, myself, Dan, Hazel and Kevis, who's not with us today. We had a lovely time at the Fringe. We did some spontaneous vet shows. We did. It was our fifth Edinburgh Fringe. And our seventh show. Because we did... Two shows those times. The one that we don't talk about. Which one don't we talk about? The kids' show that nobody came it. to. I talk about that one. Yeah. Spider-Man's family came oh, to yeah, that show. Oh, yeah, Tom Holland's dad came and gave us £20, which yeah. I was very excited about. That's as close as we've ever been to being in the Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> how did you know it was Tom Holland's dad? Because we'd been to see his show the week before, which was all about how his son is Spider-Man and is therefore more famous than he'll ever be. Ah. Dominic Holland, he is a reasonably well-known stand-up comedian. Mm. He's done like little bits of TV work and stuff like that. Yeah. His show wasn't very good. Did you go mainly because it was Tom Holland's dad? Is that the main reason the, you Well, went? that was the theme of his show. So he'd written a book about how he'd been a reasonably successful comedy writer and then his son got cast in the Billy Elliot musical in the West End and sort of eclipsed him. And that was okay. And then he went back to being a normal kid. And then he got a film role opposite Naomi Watts and Ewan McGregor in The Impossible. Oh, yeah. And got even more famous. But it was okay. He went back to being a normal teenager. And then he went on and became Spider-Man. <laughs> um, and at that point, his dad knew there was, there was no way that he would ever be as or more famous than his son. So it's about the parent being eclipsed by the child. I would be interested to hear about that because I think Tom Holland has talked on the Graham Norton show about how there was a certain point where his dad told him that he was becoming a bit of a twat. Like <laughs> his, the Hollywood ego had got to him and he was becoming a bit of a twat and his dad brought him down a level or two. So I'd be interested to hear mm. the parental perspective on kids who grow too big for their boots. But yeah, Tom Holland was there at the Fringe that year. He did come and see his dad because uh, we walked past him on Victoria Street in Edinburgh and I thought that looked like Tom. Uh, that was Tom Holland. That yeah, was I mean, Spider Man. He, he, was, he was climbing up the wall. <laughs> I know. Yeah. You talked about like him being totally eclipsed by his son, and and I know a joke about that. Oh no! So, so get the right name this time. So T- Tina Turner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yes, we we had a fun fringe. We went and saw lots of shows as well. Um, Hazel and Andy and I went to see Shamilton. Great. 
which is uh, the Baby Wants Candy improvised musical troupe create a Hamilton-style musical based on a celebrity of the audience's choice. Mm-hmm. It came down to Bella Swan or Paddington, and thankfully, sense reigned. And, yes, uh, and we heard all about Paddington. Getting stuffed. Yes. Oh, dear. I saw an excellent, very, very, very nerdy show called Lies, Damned Lies and Buffy the Vampire Slayer which is a statistical analysis comedy show about Buffy. <laughs> Buffy and spreadsheets. So many spreadsheets. <laughs> so, um, so on the Venn diagram yeah, for you, Dan. I, I know. It was the nerdiest thing I've ever seen, and I loved it. It was a comedian called Ben Lund Condlin, who, during lockdown, was listening to a Buffy podcast on which a guest was talking about a particularly notable death in the show and said, this death really meant something. You know, we've had countless deaths on Buffy, but this one was important. And he heard that and thought, are they countless? <laughs> and, he made, and he went and counted every one of them. Huge spreadsheet, 25 data points, eight detailed guidelines on what counted as a death, location, method of dispatch, who did it, who got killed, and he turned it into an hour-long comedy show. And it's really, really good. Wow. If you ever see it advertised anywhere, do go and see that one, especially if you're a big nerd. Do vampires count as deaths, given that they're already... Well, this, kind was, of this was one of the rules. If their death is reported or is seen either in flashback or in the show, that counts as a death. Their vampire death counts as a death as well. But just the fact that they are a vampire does not count as a death in the show, even though it implies that at some point in the past they died. There, there are rules. He explains it all okay. in great depth. He, he, think, he has thought of everything. Do you die when you become a vampire? I thought you just became a vampire no you you die as a human and a demon possesses your body that's Ah. how it works in Buffy the stakes are higher than that John Police Cops was fantastic I know a few of you have seen that already Mm. but we we saw Police Cops the musical have you seen that this year because that's a new show isn't it yeah it's sort of taken the the skeleton of the original Police Cops show and musicalified it and if you thought they were the best damn Police Cops ever when the first time round, they really are the best damn police cops ever. Mm. I love the physical comedy in it. Yes. The, the stuff with the checkered tablecloth mm. where they pretend there's a table mounted somewhere. In fact, they're just holding on while they pretend to sit on it, while they pretend to take a drink, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's amazingly done. Mm. <laughs> Such a simple thing. But there's so many things. You wonder how often they forget to put a prop in the right place because there must be hundreds of cues mm. during the show. Yeah, they, they've worked together for a number of years. They all, I think, trained together at the East 15 acting school in, I assume, East London. Um, so they've had... Hang on, why are they... But they're American? <laughs> the accents are flawless if they're... <laughs> you, you clearly didn't see their 90s Manchester show a yeah, couple I did, years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, they've worked together for so long that I think if they, if they miss one thing, they can cover for anything and an audience would, would mm. never know because mm-hmm. the, the effort and the physicality of it all... You just get caught up in it. I've seen them go from playing like a little tiny room to sort of one of the biggest stages, and it's really nice to see something like organically grow like that. Mm. They're, they're one of those ones that seem to be big at the fringe, but not particularly well known out of it. I think they, I think they did a tour in sort of 2018, 2019. Mm. But John, you were saying they're going to tour the musical with a band. With a band, apparently. Oh, that, yeah. that'd be good. Yeah. Mm. So I'll definitely go and see that again. Same here. What's yeah. the worst thing you saw? Um. Spontaneous Rex. <laughs> Nonsense. The worst thing I saw, I, and I do have a list because of course I do. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Did you rank them? Yeah. The, um, 
we played it safe this year and mostly bought tickets to things that we already knew we would like. Mm-hmm. But probably the most disappointing thing I saw was Starship Improvise, mm. which is a, a great pun on the Starship Enterprise. The captain was called Kim Kardashian, um, um. further to your uh, references on the last <laughs> episode, Peter. Yeah. Um, and it was a mix of people from Showstopper, the improvised musical, people from Mischief Theatre, people from Ostentatious, and they were doing a serialised Star Trek-style sci-fi show. Each show you saw was an episode introduced by them as the actors at a Comic-Con panel. But for the most part, it's the second or third show for a lot of the performers. It's not their main thing Mm -hmm. that they've come to the Fringe to do. Mm -hmm. So they were all having fun. They were all having a great time. But it felt as an audience member like you were just watching them have fun and uh, have a bit of a laugh with each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when you're paying 15 quid for a ticket for it, you kind of want... You want to be let in on yeah, the joke. Maybe we just saw a day where they weren't fully feeling yeah. it. So let's move on. Uh, so we've got some personal recommendations that we're going to go in depth on in a bit, but we thought we'd do a group chat about our early impressions of some new shows that have just come out. So shall we start with She-Hulk? Objection. <laughs> Overruled. So in both cases, there's only been one episode so far. Uh, of each of these two, just yes. to put this in context. She-Hulk and uh, House of the Dragon, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but yes, uh, She-Hulk came out on Disney Plus last week. And uh, this is a story of Jennifer Walters, uh, pay- played by Tatiana Maslany. She is a very uh, good lawyer. Um, the first episode talks about uh, the incident which gave her her powers and her being mentored by her cousin Bruce and how she comes to deal with them. In a way, it's going to be hard to judge the series because this first episode deals so much with that sort of origin story bit. Mm-hmm. And I feel the rest of it's going to be much more sort of courtroom drama Yeah, four episodes have been made available to reviewers, I think. Mm-hmm. And it seems that it takes on a more of a case of the week format mm. yeah. once, er- once mm-hmm. yeah. her origin as She-Hulk has been established, which I think it pretty much is. Yeah. At this yeah. point. They, they, they say in. there is a, a storyline, a linear storyline that ties them all together. She's kind of put in charge of this new superhero lawyer um, thing. Let's call it a thing. Division. Uh, <laughs> Division. Thank you very much. Uh, w- one thing you could clearly tell, which is no surprise, is Tatiana Maslany was great. Yes. She is Brilliant. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Comedically, dramatically, she was just wonderful. Huge charisma and the kind of fourth wall break in um, speaking directly to the audience thing could go one of two ways and it very much went the right way yeah. because of her, I think. Mm. Shall I tell you about my experience watching it as a woman? Because I know you all... Look- nah. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you well, have- we could explain it to you. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, hey. when, when, will, when will there be a he-hulk? <laughs> <laughs> It was so based on reality and like true to life experiences. Like, so she basically becomes the Hulk when she's feeling scared or, um, you know, feeling angry about something. And, you know, she, it, it shows us, um, some of the things that make her scared, which is, um, being cornered by a group of guys outside a pub. Um, some of the things that make her angry, like, you know, misogynistic co workers, things like that. Um and sorry not to question your experience here, <laughs> but um, you know, please I, tell me how I'm feeling about it. <laughs> yeah, it's not that <laughs> a man interruption. <laughs> yeah, here we go. One thing that's different about the way she does it is she's in control of it. 
in a way that the yes. Hulk never mm. is. I think that's by the end of the episode, isn't it? Though, so I think the first, like when she's being followed by those guys in the park, that's an emotional reaction that she's not in control of. Yeah, and I, I believe this is a departure from the comics. I believe that when she becomes She-Hulk, that's it permanent. Um, whereas here, they've found a way for her to lower the CGI budget. Yeah, I've <laughs> <laughs> read a really good run of She-Hulk comics from a few years ago, and in that one, she does shift between human form and Hulk form, mm-hmm. just depending mm-hmm. on what's going on and what's happening in the scene. Okay. That's um, so Either way, I think it's like a good way to differentiate between Bruce Banner mm-hmm. and uh, and She-Hulk. And I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying the, well, I enjoyed the first episode and I can't wait for more. If it can keep up the tone and yeah. Tatiana mm-hmm. Maslany can keep being as good as she was in episode one, it mm-hmm. should be one of the better MCU TV shows. And Ooh, anyone yeah. who's enjoying this, I totally recommend they go and search out Orphan Black, which is a great series where mm-hmm. she plays multiple characters all at once, many times in the same scene, and does an amazing job of it. So, House of the Dragon, uh, Dan and Peter, you've seen the first episode of this. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I really, really liked it. It was a couple of minutes in, and I thought, I didn't realize how much I missed the world of ice and fire on my screen until it came back and it, it was Targaryens and armor and amazing costumes and dragons and King's Landing spread, spread out in front of us as the dragons flew in. I thought, mm. ah, this is good. I remember how much I loved Game of Thrones now. I haven't watched it since it finished. Um, how much you loved most of Game of Thrones? <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't mind the last season. Even Bran becoming king. <sighs> Um, I mean, what were there better options? He's high in fiber. Yep. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he tastes great. Um, yeah, uh, the last couple of seasons of that felt a bit rushed. This one was a nice establishing episode that mm-hmm. set some stuff up, introduced us to some characters. Uh, Matt Smith is playing a great, snide, smarmy, horrible villain called Damon Targaryen, uh, who is going to be trouble as the series goes on, mm-hmm. I reckon. So I've got high hopes for it. What I will say is the first episode has got a very, very, very graphic childbirth scene, which has generated quite a lot of online discussion, particularly among women who've had traumatic Mm -hmm. experiences related to that before, kind of going, this is all still framed within a male perspective. And it's, you know, as bad as watching some of the worst sexual scenes in Game of Thrones um, with Sansa and Ramsay Bolt and things like that. Just mm-hmm. they are hard to watch mm-hmm. in that first episode. So if you haven't seen House of the Dragon yet, warning for you if that sort of thing will have an effect on you, skip those bits. I read it as, you know, showing how terrible it was. Well, and yeah. How uh, primitive things were then. Yeah, well, this is what the showrunners were saying, and this is one of the things they've that's been picked up on they're talking about not that it's real yeah Yeah, that's the thing it's not a back then it's not an actual historical thing it's all made up it's a world with dragons in it um so do you have to show those sorts of things so we're we're reflecting the misogyny of the time it's like Mm. there was no time (laughs) yeah um you are able to convey such ideas though without graphic imagery um so did it feel in, in any way gratuitous because that was one of the issues yes. i had with game of thrones uh, yeah it's it's interspersed with a jousting tournament where there is crushing and graphic violence of a different kind mm. and these things are going on simultaneously yeah there's there's it's a lot mm. um so if those sorts of things do not float your boat from a an aesthetic perspective have they made an effort to make it look like 
Game of Thrones. Yes, very much yeah. so. Yeah. One of the things that Game of Thrones always did amazingly was the costume design. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of costumes just in this first episode that look astonishing. Mm -hmm. uh, the the dresses, the armor, the the way that jousting tournament is dressed, it's really really cool. It's a little bit lighter, it's a little bit before the fall of the Targaryens. Mm -hmm. So King's Landing looks a little bit more prosperous. There there is a complete dragon pit where the dragons live. It's almost like a sort of flight hanger for them to yeah. go park in, which is quite <laughs> yeah. amusing. Um, yeah, so it's got subtle differences, but it is very recognisably mm -hmm. the same world. Does it just feel like more Game of Thrones, or is, do um, you reckon it's going for its own character? It, it hasn't hit the high stakes yet, but I think that yeah. comes with, you need to establish it before you can have those stakes. Mm -hmm. I think it's aiming to be the very yeah, much the same um, sort of thing. This one's more set in the royal court. And it's mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. one family that is in charge. They've had absolute power. They've had peace for 60 years. And you can tell they're about to tear each other apart. Yeah, like the conflicts are coming from within that circle instead yeah. of being... And in Game of Thrones, it's so long till people actually meet. Whereas mm -hmm. in this case, you start with the meeting. Yeah, and it's, it's all within King's Landing. And it uh, will spread out across the realm. One thing I particularly enjoyed was uh, Matt Smith's performance. Yes. I, I thought he, was, he made a good baddie. I've not really seen him in many other things other than Doctor Who, so at least two occasions where uh, me and my wife were going, <gasps> you know, it's Doctor Who doing that. Still, there's like a shagging scene, and it just seems wrong when it's oh. Doctor Who. He has made a habit of um, being playing utter bastards yeah. uh, recently, hasn't he? Matt Smith is a kind of love to hate him character, mm -hmm. not unlike a Joffrey Baratheon. Oh, um, mm. Is like a, I can't wait to see what he does next. I hate him so much, but yeah. I want to watch him do whatever that is. Yeah. And then and then meet a ghastly end at some stage. Well, let's hope. <laughs> or win, possibly. Or win, possibly. Who yeah. knows? Well, I, I do because I read the book. <laughs> no spoilers. I don't like uh, the Game of the Thrones. Yes. Um, I, I'm going to give this a try, but do you think based on this single episode you've seen so far do you think there's much chance of me getting into this if you do not like the game of the thrones the house of the dragon might not be the one for the you <laughs> oh the dear <laughs> the apologies i'll try it though how far do you get through game of thrones um i watched the whole first season when it first came out mm. and um I, I loved the look and the feel of it but i never actually enjoyed any episode it always felt like potential and then it wasn't realized and then sean bean's head fell off and I stopped watching. And I've seen various episodes and various bits from um, subsequent series. And uh, yeah. <laughs> lots, lots, lots of nudity and graphic, probably unnecessary violence. I think you'll watch the one episode. <laughs> no more. <laughs> probably no more based on that. Mm. Yeah. yeah fair Which is fine. Let's move on to our main set of recommendations. John, should we delve into some dreams with you? <laughs> oh, sorry, I was, just, I was having a wonderful dream. And you were there, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there, and you were all fucking. <laughs> <laughs> they cut the Wizard of Oz just at the right point, I think, actually. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I am going to recommend a, a small little independent TV series that's not had much um, traction or coverage, which is Sandman. 
based on the Neil Gaiman comic, which lasted between I think 1989 and, and the, the mid-90s. And if you're of my age, of around that age, when you grew up and you were a little bit nerdy, Sandman was your thing, and everybody loved Sandman. And we've spent the last 30 years-ish waiting for a Sandman film or TV series to be made hoping that they don't make a terrible Sandman TV series because it's a it's a character and a, a comic book that means an awful lot to a lot of people. Do you have a like a forum of 40-something-year-old white men? <laughs> yeah, we all get together. When's the day? <laughs> yeah, there, there was a script a few years ago that Neil Gaiman said was not only the worst Sandman script he'd read, it was the worst script he'd ever read. Oh, dear. And also it's a story that you couldn't really do as a film because it's so sort of sprawling and episodic. So finally in 2019, Netflix gave them a lot of money. And three years later, it's 90% of what I hoped it would be. It's really, really, really good. The arc follows a character alternately known as Morpheus or Dream, who is played by Tom Sturridge, who is the god of dreaming. And at the start of the series, he is half accidentally imprisoned by Charles Dance, who is trying to resurrect his dead son. And he then spends the next hundred years kept prisoner by this kind of group of strange occult people, whilst the world around him struggles. And then he manages to escape and has to rebuild his empire. Because he is, you know, he's endless and he has the dream world and the real world, he can basically go anywhere and do anything. So you've got a series of stories, particularly in the comic books, where your scope is any point in history and any place in the universe. So you can, you know, there's a real depth and variety to the stories. What they've done, which works very well for the most part, is that they've taken elements from the comic books and moved them around a bit. So while you still have all the weirdness, there's much more of a through line than there was to the original comic books. Do you think that was necessary in a more of a TV medium? I think so, yes. You do kind of end up with something that is quite episodic, but yet still has through lines, which I think works much better for a TV show. There's a few narrative loopholes that have caused a little bit by the fact that the show is set in the present day, but yet the past scenes are still set where they were in the comics. So you have some characters, you think, hang on, these guys are going to be 100 110 years old i think they said the necklace she was wearing helped yeah. keep her young or something but that doesn't explain some of the other characters who would be much older than they appear to be in the series there's one particular issue of the comic which introduces a character called death who is a sort of a fan favorite and i cried when i read the comic and i was like please get that right and i, I cried again when i watched the Mm. the tv show so that's that's kind of a, a thing of how it worked i mean it's um the actors are uniformly great one or two shots where you can tell you know there's some cgi background and and so on but you know 99 percent of the time it looks amazing considering the scope of what they're doing to do that on a, a tv budget albeit a netflix tv budget mm. is uh still incredibly impressive neil gaiman i think has said because of the sheer amount that was spent on this project, it has to perform mm. extraordinarily well. And it is doing. And he, even he's saying now on Twitter, 
Yeah, it's the number one trending show across all of the streaming platforms by far. It still might not be enough for a second series yeah. because it's that expensive. Mm. If you don't get the people binge watching it straight away, mm-hmm. they don't count it as having been watched or something weird like that. So if you like me and you like to take your time with things, I'm not helping it yeah. get a second series. <laughs> Watch it now. But, but <laughs> I, I've watched three of them and I've mm-hmm. loved all three of the ones I've watched so far. Mm-hmm. But I haven't got the time to sit and watch all of them all at once. Mm-hmm. I want to take my time with it. Netflix yeah. doesn't want me to do that. But it's a kind of show that you luxuriate in just mm-hmm. to yeah, yeah. absorb it and take it all in. And- the comic has an arc and the comic has a definitive ending. And there's 75 issues of the comic. Mm. I would say there's 15 issues of the comic covered in the first yeah. season. So you it's, it, you could do it in five mm. seasons. I really, really hope they get yeah. to do that. You shouldn't have to watch it as soon as it comes out to Mm -hmm. get a chance to finish the story. Like with the comics, I'm sure not everybody who's read and loved them started reading them in 1989. It's interesting, so I imagine there's millions of Sandman fans who have jumped at this, who've been waiting for this for years, and have have binged it and gone, oh, this is amazing. But then, have you ever read the comics? I've read the first few issues once quite a few years ago Mm -hmm. and remember barely anything about them. So I'm, I'm, I'm going into the series as new and it worked for you works brilliantly i Mm. like within 10 minutes of the first episode i was completely Mm. hooked into that world and wanted to know what happened next i say it's reasonably episodic so there's no real need to binge it i don't think i I, I, i've been doing it you know Mm. one or two episodes a night not notice a huge cliffhanger at the end of Mm -hmm. each episode and um, I'm saying I, I I knew nothing going in, and uh, I think we're five or six episodes in. Loving it, I think it's mm. storytelling at its finest. Really, really enjoying it. The first episode, I thought I liked the feel of it, but it didn't quite sell me. But mm-hmm. it's getting stronger and stronger. The last episode we watched uh, in the diner mm-hmm. was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I'm really pleased, actually, that you've described it a couple of times as episodic, because, I mean, obviously it is. But the the one little thing that's been irking me a little is that um, the kind of the, the through line hasn't felt that strong to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, is, is it coming? Am I missing something? And if it's not really what they're going for, then I can actually just kind of forget about that and just enjoy yeah. each episode mm-hmm. On its own merits, so so mm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased with that. The the comic tends to have arcs of about five or six issues, and then they'll have like almost like a palate cleanser, a one off. So one of those is the bonus episode that they've just released with the um, the cats. <sighs> there are cats. Mm-hmm. The, um, so they seem to be following that kind of thing. So Pete, have you enjoyed it? Uh, yeah, um, I've seen three or four, uh, and I've I think I've enjoyed it more with each one in a way mm-hmm. as you start to see the shape of it. Mm. I think the second episode's the weakest. Mm-hmm. It veers into possibly going a little bit twee. So how many dreams? I was gonna I was gonna say wet dreams. No, <laughs> no, no, no. How, how many rubies, helms, and bags of sand out of ten? You know what? I'm going to have to say it's a 10 because it is, it's something I wanted to see most of my life and they've got it. Yeah. That's high pressure for something to deliver on. Yeah. It's something that means an awful lot to a lot of people and to get it right, particularly to get the dining episode and the death episode pretty much perfect was really special. Hmm. Hmm. Excellent. Hazel, why don't you go next? Oh, me. <laughs> mm. My recommendation is Bad Sisters. Uh, which is a brand new TV show that has arrived on Apple TV Plus. And it is a dark comedy with 10 episodes and it stars Sharon Horgan, 
Anne-Marie Duff, Eva Burstwistle, Sarah Green, Eve Hewson, Daryl McCormack, Kleist Bang, which is the best name ever, Kleist Bang. Is he Dracula? <laughs> yeah, He looks like he could be. He was. He was, he was Dracula in... Moffat. The, the, oh, the, sec- the second worst Dracula that's ever been committed to film. That was awful. Uh, and Brian Gleeson. Now, it's set in and around present-day Dublin, and the central premise is that Anne-Marie Duff's character, Grace, uh, she is married to Clice Bang's character, uh, JP, and JP is an absolute dickhead. Um, Grace's sisters all call him uh, the prick, and that is actually the title of the first episode. He is so, so horrible, but it's not in a pantomime way. It's, it's, it's heightened, but it's a very believable dickhead. So he's controlling, he's manipulative, he gaslights, he's abusive, uh, he's smarmy, and he's dead. Uh, I promise you that's not a spoiler. <laughs> Dracula? <laughs> well, Dracula's been dead for a while. Oh. Uh, but, uh, and he's living it. Oh. <laughs> beat you by one second. <laughs> second best Dracula ever committed to film uh, yeah so JP is dead he is uh, seen in a coffin in the first few minutes of the episode he's got an erection in the coffin um, and the show he's in his <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah, you beat me to that one <laughs> Uh, the show then takes on this dual timeline, so it follows the immediate aftermath of JP's death and also the six months before it, where he's shown to, let's say, provide a number of motives for his demise by a range of people. Um, in fact, during the funeral, uh, a person comes up to Sharon Horgan's character, Ava, who is Grace's sister, and says, I'm so sorry for your loss. And Ava responds, I'm just glad that the suffering is over. And the guest says, oh, I didn't know that he had a long-term illness. And Ava says, no, he didn't. <laughs> um, so we have a very, very interesting whodunit comedy drama. Um, I've seen two episodes so far, which is um, all that they've been released. Uh, they're releasing one episode a week. The cause of death has not been revealed, um, but we're told it was a pretty grisly way to die. Um, but also part of this is uh, two men from an insurance company uh, played by Grant played by Brian Gleeson and Dal McCormack. Um, they are investigating or trying to investigate what happened because if they have to pay out the very large life insurance money, they're going to lose their business. Really entertaining so far. Uh, that is in part due to the plot, which is really good, but it's mainly due to the character-driven nature of it. So the show takes its time to introduce all of the characters properly and give them their own story um, and also serving the main whodunit plot point of the show. I think it's really well written, incredibly acted, um, and I honestly can't wait to see where it goes next. And this is another Apple TV Plus show. Yes. You're going to have to get that subscription back. There's yeah. been several things just that Hazel's recommended on this podcast <laughs> uh, just this year that have made me think, I should really get Apple back. This... Is this worth getting Apple back for by itself? Ooh, well, uh, there are several series on Apple TV Plus that I'm loving at the moment. So there's this one. There's also For All Mankind, which is a uh, alternate history of the space race. That is absolutely brilliant. But I, I, I didn't, I'm not recommending it this time because I kind of want to watch a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, Don't say it. What's that? Things on Apple TV. I think she was going to mention Severance. Yeah, not the... Worst oh, show. oh, I see. The single worst yeah. show ever committed to TV. He's talking about Ted Lasso. 
Oh, I see. Oh, yes, Ted Lasso. Ooh, let's talk about that for a while. <laughs> um, yeah, there are several. I would say this is right up there. Um, mm. I think you would like it a lot because um, the tone, even though it can go dark uh, a little bit, it, it's, it's more of a comedy um, and just something really fun to get into. Yeah, it's uh, it does a really, really good job of, of balancing that it's mostly light and then occasionally gets dark, but it never feels um, dissonant. It's all very well balanced. Um, I really enjoy the characters. I love the way that it introduces the characters. Um, pretty much instantly, you know what everyone's about. You know who they are and how they fit together. It does, it's, it's really, really efficient in the way it does mm. that. There's only one thing I don't like about the show, and it's a very small thing. Um, and it's... Uh, JP, I fucking hate JP. Yeah. I'm so glad he's dead. Yeah. And that's what they're going for. Anyone yeah. watching it would not feel sorry one iota for this man being dead. And so he's such a believable villain. Like the things that he does are not catastrophically evil. But they're, they're low-key evil, aren't they? They're he's constantly trying to undermine his wife and, and uh, separate her from her family, which is what... Yeah people like that do and he he always makes it out to be her fault and mm -hmm. that she's um doing something to inconvenience him um and yes he's he's yes yes very yeah, yeah. Uh, i i hated him just from the trailer um <laughs> but i think they lay it on a little too thick for my liking um he's constantly a massive dick to everyone around him and I think they could have uh, reeled back a bit from that. You'd still hate him and still be glad that he's dead. But he's he's so consistently an utter bastard. You've not spent much time in the corporate world, have you, my dear? Because uh, there are gentlemen <laughs> like that. I promise you. I can I can certainly <laughs> believe it. <laughs> but he's he, he doesn't quite feel as realistic as as the other characters. Um, I, I don't find it entirely realistic that he's just always a complete bellend to man, woman and child, whoever comes into his orbit. I do think it's a heightened performance, but it's mm -hmm. based on complete reality. I know people like that. Yeah, his style of um, ass-hattery is definitely yeah. um, realistic, but it's it's the, the consistency of it. Yeah. Concentrated bastardry. <laughs> that should be a perfume. No, I'd have to shave. <laughs> Concentrated bastardry. I'd have to shave on the perfume. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so how many mysterious it's, corpses? It's not a mysterious corpses right there with an erection. How many <laughs> how many unwanted erections out of ten? <laughs> <laughs> how uh, many stiff stiffs out of ten? Stiff dicks. Stiff stiffs. Stiffs. Stiffs with stiffies. <laughs> Stiffed stiffs. Please stop saying stiff. <laughs> uh just because it's quite early on, I'm gonna go with an eight for now and mm. I'll uh lower that all. Higher that later. <laughs> I will check, certainly check that out. You will not be disappointed. Who's next? Uh, I'd like to recommend a documentary on Netflix called Stay On Board, The Leo Baker Story. So Leo Baker is a transgender skateboarding star who initially found fame at a young age as Lacey Baker, subsequently becoming a legend of women's skateboarding before transitioning to become their true self. Uh, they use the pronouns they slash them, but also accept he slash him and present as masculine just so you know. Um, this documentary follows Baker from 2019 onwards when they are living a split life in private amongst family and friends as Leo um, and in public still as Lacey, the false persona they feel they have to maintain for the sake of their career. The Tokyo Olympics, with the first ever skateboarding competition, loom on the horizon and Leo is torn between continuing to present the way the world expects them to and being who they really are. 
We learn about Leo's difficult childhood, how they got into skating and how much it means to them. Uh, I will say at this stage that I've got zero interest in skating, but this didn't impair my enjoyment of the film at all. You don't have to like or even know anything about the sport. We see the heavy toll that Leo endures as someone who is constantly misgendered and who feels forced to hide their true self and the tough decisions they make in order to live an authentic life. They wrestle with concerns about how their gender identity will affect their career and relationships with the people that they, that they love. The documentary features interviews with Leo, their girlfriends, mother, friends, business partners and peers. Even Tony Hawk pops up from time to time. Uh, it's an incredibly well-paced 73-minute documentary and it manages to explain everything very clearly but never in too much detail. And it always, always, always focuses on Leo's humanity and individuality. I found it fascinating, informative, enjoyable and emotional as well. Um, I think this is an important documentary too. Um, there's a gigantic... There's a gigantic amount of bigoted bullshit out there about trans people, often about their involvement in sport or the prevention thereof. Stay On Board is a wonderful demonstration of the simple truth that trans people just want to go their own way and live their own lives. And their participation in sport is just because they're people who like sport and want to do it. There's no nefarious scheme of deception in order to cheat or abuse others. They're just people. Leo Baker is a brave, inspirational person who doesn't especially want to be and just wants to skate. Uh, the more people like them who the public has the chance to get to know, the better. So I thoroughly encourage you to check it out. During the making of this film, Leo was Leo to friends and family, but still presenting as Lacey. So how did the camera crew get access to that? Or is it home video footage or is it done retrospectively? There is some home video footage. Um, there's lots of interviews and there's some kind of um, almost fly on the wall stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure of the exact timing i think it was around 2017 um leo i think posted to twitter in response to an article that referred to uh, them as she and um said please use my correct pronouns and um then became a bit of a, a lightning rod for the culture wars as it were that kind of prompted the documentary crew to ask if they could make a, a feature about them mm -hmm. and um even during the documentary uh, leo's working out how they want to proceed and what they want to do there's a lot of consideration about top surgery um and the ridiculous hurdles that um that, that was necessary to uh, jump through to to get that done but it's it's a lot about wrestling with the decision to mm -hmm. um to either do this and effectively go the whole hog and very publicly stop being lacy baker and start being leo should I hold on because my career is built around this Lacey Baker character? The Olympics are coming up for the first time ever. Um, I wasn't going to say what happened with the Olympics, but it's actually um, one of the very first things that you uh, read about if you Google Leo Baker. Um, and Baker quit the Olympic team in early 2020 um, before the pandemic hit and it got delayed to 2021. But ultimately made that decision to say, um, I'm not going to pretend to be someone I'm not anymore, even mm -hmm. if it means not being in the Olympics. Their friend, uh, Stephen Ostrovsky, had a great quote about that. Do you know what's crazier than doing the Olympics? Saying, fuck the Olympics. And mm -hmm. that's very true. And it's great. And it's so very clearly the right decision. The utter relief and joy that Leo feels upon making that decision. Um Towards the end of the um, the documentary, you see some footage of Leo sat at home um, on their couch watching the Olympics and just being so fucking glad that they're not there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, yeah, it's 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 really 
really gratifying. So they, they were entered as Lacey on the girls' team. Yeah. It's interesting because obviously it sounds like they've had that very big decision to make, but then amplified by the fact that it will completely change what they can do, giving up something that has been a massive dream of theirs, I would imagine, to go to the Olympics. Mm. It's the Olympics. It's yeah. like, it's yeah. a, it's high stakes. Mm. And sport in general and the Olympics in particular are an incredibly gendered space. If uh, Leo had said, I want to compete as a man, I imagine the Olympics would have said, fuck off, no, mm-hmm. because that's what they say. But Leo's doing fantastic now, um, mm-hmm. has all sorts of sponsorships, um, has their own skateboard company um, and um, holding their own competitions and such. And at the end of the documentary, um, Leo seems to be in, in a tremendous headspace, um, doing fantastically well, which is really, really good to see, very emotional. Um, but they, they feel like they're, they're picking up fr- um, from where they left off before they became famous as a female skater. Mm-hmm. They're just a skater now, which is all, yeah. all they ever wanted to be. Yeah. And that's really beautiful. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it sounds like it's a, a film about an inspiring person that just happens to have skating as the background rather than a skateboarding documentary. Yeah. That'd be right. Definitely. Yeah. There's a lot of skateboarding in it, as, as you'd expect. But, um, Again, for someone who doesn't know or care about it, it wasn't a problem at all. So so how many ollies? Is that a skateboarding yes. term? Yes. How many I've ollies been, yeah. out of... T- have you been looking up skateboarding No, I, I've been, we've been playing Tony Hawk's Pro Skater <laughs> on the PS5 <laughs> this month. I was going to go for a 540 Benihana. <laughs> uh, how many... <laughs> 540 Benihana, double ollies... Kickflips. Kickflips out of 10, would you give it? Uh, nine. nine. Nine of those things. I think it's important for people to realise the impact of if you were to misgender someone or, you know, think of them in a certain way, the realising the impact on them. And yeah. it's important for us to have that context. It's very rarely trans people that actually get a voice. They get spoken yeah. about. And yeah. it's very important yeah. that you get to see. Um, and for anyone who kind of thinks that, oh, I'm just going to call them what I want because um, it's... <laughs> I don't know, for, for whatever reasons that they have. They claim it's too complicated. It's I too complicated, you can't remember. But it's a, it's a great way to understand the effects that that has on, mm. on the person. Yeah, it conveys that very well. Has anyone been watching the Umbrella Academy this season? No. no. Um, because who was Ellen Page, who is now Elliot Page, yep. transitioned before making this season. And then in, the, in about the second episode... They essentially just turn up and said, oh, by the way, I'm a boy now. And everyone just accepts it. It's yeah. really sweet. It's mm-hmm. really nice. And mm-hmm. everyone just, ah, and then just moves along. <laughs> you know, and that's actually really nice to see. Netflix yeah. is quite a nice thing that they went back and they changed the name on all the previous things that were on Netflix. Ah. So if, I don't know if Juno's on Netflix, but if you mm-hmm. look up, for example, Juno now, it will say Elliot Page in the cast. Mm. Mm, that's great. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, well done, Netflix. So, yep, um, stay on board the Leo well, They Baker also story. put Dave Chappelle on, so, you know, it's been some roundabouts. <laughs> <laughs> Not so well done, Netflix. <laughs> well, yeah. But do check this out. Stay on board the Leo Baker story, and it's it's uh, an hour and a quarter. Um, it's, it's half the length of an episode of Stranger Things. Give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> do we go to... Right, okay, so do me then, Dan. Well, um, well do I get a choice? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't even get that. So Dan gets my sloppy seconds. I would say it's not it's not nice making Dan wait for thirty seconds, is it? <laughs> <laughs> snip, snip, out it comes. Yeah, if you think this is going the show, you've got, you can think again. Peter, what have you got? I'd like to recommend Prey, which is the fourth sequel to Predator, which was released in nineteen eighty-seven, thirty-five years ago. 
I'm actually, I think you'll find that it's probably the sixth sequel to Predator. Not counting Alien vs. Predator. Why not? Why, why, why? Or Alien vs. Predator 2. Although, if we're being technical about it, would you not consider this a prequel rather than a sequel? Yes. It's the entry of the franchise. The but would, would, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So it's the first prequel to the Predator <laughs> film. Is, is it? But weren't any of the others say, before 1997? No. I don't believe so, no. I believe I only the others were, the first were one. Main, mainly sequels. All <laughs> oh, right, I see. So the fourth sequel, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> This is the first one to be a prequel, being set in 1719 in the northern Great Plains of America, where Comanche warrior Naru is trying to prove herself to her tribe as a hunter worthy of her ancestors. But she finds herself not only up against French fur traders trying to kill the buffalo they depend on, but also a planet-hopping predator who's hunting animals and humans for sport. Uh, Dan will also be pleased to learn that she's accompanied by Sari, her very good dog. Very good dog. <laughs> The movie is a well-constructed cat-and-mouse game as they hunt each other through the woods. Not too dissimilar to a few movies I've enjoyed where a party was stalked by a wolf or a bear, except this time the foe can become invisible and has heat vision. Which only certain bears have. Yes. <laughs> uh, not seen Paddington too. <laughs> uh, you know, that hard stare when yeah, you're impolite. Exactly. Uh, it's been good to see more emphasis on character rather than action sequences. And the period setting gives a different take on the franchise, whereas many of the other sequels felt just like reruns of the original with more gimmicks added. This felt like a much more grounded movie, where she really had to draw on her natural intelligence and creativity against her foes. As it's set 300 years before Predator, I would have liked to have seen more difference in the tech they use. So it's about 250. <laughs> 1819, 1919, plus 50 would take you to 1969, which is only about 15 years away from the original Predator. Whereas if you were to go to 300 years, we're only 2019, which is about 42 years away. No. As it's set 250 <laughs> years before Predator. <laughs> About I would have liked... <laughs> I would have liked to have seen more difference in the tech they use. Some of the fun of that movie, or indeed Alien, is learning what they can do and exactly what you're up against. And this could have been a chance to discover that all over again, to match against the most less advanced human foe. For example, the cloaking device might have been less sophisticated, though it didn't look exactly like the first film. Perhaps the Predator could only select preset textures... That way they'd only stay hidden as long as they didn't move. And that would give them... You're just a... writing your own film now. Please. I am, yes. Yes, <laughs> this is what they should have done. And it's their fault for not doing it. Um, but this now feels like he has such a stupidly high technological advantage that it doesn't feel like a fair fight. But at least they did make his iconic three-dot laser weapon. Uh, it fires darts instead, which becomes like a plot point. The script does manage to hew horn in the famous if it bleeds, we can kill it line, which was a bit cringy. I almost expected someone to point at a tomahawk some distance away so they could shout, <laughs> get, get to the, the chopper. Thank you. <laughs> a very reluctant joining in there. <laughs> it's just been made available on Hulu in the US and on Disney Plus in the UK. I did feel it was a little small scale in places for a cinema release, so maybe landing up on streaming services isn't such a bad thing. I think it was always intended for streaming. Was it now? Uh, apparently it's also being made in a Comanche dub. But I watched it in English. Mm. <laughs> uh, the director and co-writer is Dan Trachtenberg, who's probably best known for 10 Cloverfield Lane. He also directed the pilot episode of The Boys and now is currently developing a TV series based on Waterworld, which is not something I thought the world needed. <laughs> Kevin Costner in it. I doubt it. 
Presumably no one's seen it. I have I've, seen it. I've seen it. Uh, presumably some of you have seen it. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've seen it. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I thought Amber Mid Thunder was great. Mm. Um, it did feel like it took a little while to get into its groove and to really get going. I only really fully got invested into it probably in the last half an hour or so. Nara is a great character, but she was trying and failing at things quite a lot in the first two thirds of the film. Um, and it almost made her too much of an underdog, hmm. if that makes sense. Not to be confused with the very good dog, who was a very good <laughs> dog throughout. And also for someone of my sensitivities, and Hazel will agree on the killing of animals in oh, films. Emphatically um, told this is not a Hazel yes, film. There are there are lots of animals that die. It's um to say it was on the nose about showing images of predators killing prey in various ways in nature would be accurate. Yes. When you tempted to David Attenborough over the top of it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you you almost definitely could, except they're all CG. When the French fur trappers turn up and they've just slaughtered hundreds of bison and mm. it's uh, it happened and it's awful and you know that it's not going to get any better and you know species get wiped out i was quite happy to see them all get killed by <laughs> both the comanche and the predator mm. um it's a shame they didn't team up against the europeans to be honest um <laughs> <laughs> now who's rewriting the film i know <laughs> you were concerned beforehand after seeing some reviews that it might be glorifying big game hunting I didn't quite get that from the film itself, mm-hmm. um, but certainly if you were into hunting, you would quite enjoy it from that perspective. There's a lot of watching the big, powerful animal kill the smaller, weaker animal, and mm. you, if you're mm. that kind of a Chris Pratt, then you'd probably quite mm-hmm. enjoy this sort of thing. But Is the, is the dog okay? The dog is fine, yes. The, there are some worries about the dog, mm-hmm. but the dog is okay. In a way, the imbalance between the predator's weaponry and everyone else does actually highlight the fact that hunters are not fighting a fair fight yeah it does but uh, i think some people would see it as look at all that cool weaponry yeah there were some kind of i thought superfluous bits in the first half of the film where it's just showing the predator and i I prefer it if if they do the jaws thing and they don't actually really show it's such an iconic design now though isn't there's a great deal of point in hiding it Mm-hmm. Maybe, um, yeah. and I think part so, of it going to streaming is it's going to reach people who yeah. wouldn't go to the cinema to watch a Predator film, mm-hmm. yeah. who will watch it on Disney Plus or Hulu. Um, the biggest problem I had with the film, uh, I, I did like it. Uh, mm. I thought it was good. I think it's it's um, easily the second best Predator film, though there's yeah. a gulf in quality between it and the original. Mm-hmm. Was the uh, the French fur trappers? Mm. Um, not that they shouldn't have uh, had had a presence um, or, or been villains. It's just that it muddied the waters when mm. they came in and beca- became more of a villain than the Predator. And then there's an extended sequence of the Predator doing cool shit and killing them with fancy yeah. weapons, and you the predator's the hero in that moment and then once that's over we're back to the main plot and now how do we feel about the predator it's not so clear a villain anymore and it that wasn't Mm. the story they were telling i just thought it muddied things i didn't really see it that way i saw it still through her eyes of her sort of terror and trying to appear not dangerous so that he wouldn't kill her so i was just entirely seeing it from her standpoint at that point yeah so i I never saw it the predator as the hero at any point the last third of the film when it is just down to narrow versus it that's when i got fully invested into it and you know wanted to see her survive and win 
having the fur trappers in, there's the there's this underlying thing of yes, you could kill a predator, not saying she does or doesn't, but we know historically that things aren't going to be okay mm. before too long, mm-hmm. which kind of added a, a, an accurate but sad note to it. You you don't quite enjoy the ending of the film in the way that you do when Arnold Schwarzenegger kills the Predator mm. in 1987. Because yeah. you know he's going to be fine because he's Dutch. <laughs> or Dylan no, or whoever he is. He was American, wasn't he? Yeah. 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 Well, he's Austrian, but... <laughs> I thought the main thrust of the story was was Naru um, kind of uh, becoming recognised as a warrior mm. and, and mm-hmm. as a hunter and, and gaining respect. Um, and um, that's a good story. But I felt that the fur trapper thing mm-hmm. didn't gel with that very yeah. well. It, it could was have just, just been a separate her thing. and the predator, and it could have just been a straight clear cut thing. It's I would have preferred something that. a little bit similar to Dan Trachtenberg's last film, Ten Clover Veal Lane. Uh, which was at its best when it was just Mary Elizabeth mm-hmm. Winstead mm-hmm. and John mm-hmm. Goodman mm-hmm. in the bunker. Mm-hmm. And then they added an extra element towards yeah. the end. It's like, oh, this is unnecessary. Um, this wasn't this wasn't as gratuitous as that, but it could have just been Narrow versus Predator mm-hmm. with a very good dog. And that would have been fine. So how many very good dogs out of 10 <laughs> oh, would you give? To? I think I would give it a low eight. Mm. I enjoyed it a lot and I think most people will. Dan, bring us home with some naked gibberish. Well, uh, it is Tuesday, everybody. So as we're recording, please take off all your clothes right now. I'll wait. Peter, can you put yours back on? <laughs> <laughs> right, now now that we are all nude, I would like to tell Where you about... Where did you get that scar? Oh, well, let me tell you. <laughs> no. I was on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> World War II. <laughs> The thing about a shark. <laughs> Look at his cold, dark eyes. They roll over as they bite down. Um, we, may yes. have, we may have gone off course. Yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, now that we are all nude, let's talk about Nude Tuesday, which is a new film from New Zealand starring Jackie Van Beek, who you might know from What We Do in the Shadows, and Australian actor Damon Herriman. The two of them in this film play Bruno and Laura, uh, who are a couple from a small island community who speak in a gibberish language and that's the thing of this film it's all spoken in gibberish they have invented a language for the film and the entire film plays out in that could you give us an example no because i'm not very good at gibberish um, I beg to differ yeah um it's well you're doing well so far thank you um <laughs> yeah it's so it's there is a script that Jackie Van Beek wrote as well, so they must know generally where they're going in scenes, but they are saying dialogue that is completely unintelligible because they've made up the language. And what they then did was sent the film to Julia Davis of Nighty Night, Gavin and Stacey, various other comedies fame, and she wrote subtitles based on what she thought they were saying. Uh, so... They only met for the first time at the film's UK premiere in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Film Festival last week. Who um, was there? Me was there. Me was there. <laughs> me was there. Uh, we went to what we thought was just a screening for the film festival, but turned out to be the premiere. And there were photographers and red carpet and much free food, and it was great. Um, so in the story, Bruno and Lara go to a couple's retreat to try and save their marriage. Their anniversary's gone badly. Things are strained and they go to these 
couples therapy sessions led by Jermaine Clement from Light of the Concords. And it's weird and bizarre and it's all in gibberish and the subtitles add an extra layer of weirdness to it because they are talking about things that they might not have been talking about, but it is now officially what they're saying. And (laughs) on Tuesdays, everybody goes nude and you see more of Jermaine than you could ever have thought possible. You see all of Jermaine in this film. And his Clements. And his Clements. You see all the Clements. I'm Um, I'm looking at a picture of Jermaine on my wall and I'm a bit disturbed. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of Jermaine um, (laughs) on the screen. All of him is there, both front and back. It's quite experimental in a way. It's almost like a feature-length Uh, version of the improv dubbing game where people perform a scene in gibberish and then somebody translates Mm. it. But it works really well because you quite quickly forget that you're watching a made-up language. The way Julia Davis has written those subtitles is she's put lots of gags and lots of jokes in there based on what she's decided they're saying, but they all work within the context of the story. And within about 10 minutes, you could just be watching something that was in Lithuanian or Mm -hmm. Norwegian or Danish or something like that. And it just becomes a film in another language. But it's also a really daft, funny film with Mm -hmm. goats and so much Jermaine and (laughs) things like that as well. Would you have liked to have seen it without subtitles? Would that have been an experience you would have liked to have I think you'd have broadly got the same story. I think I would have interpreted the ending differently. Mm-hmm. If I'd watched it without subtitles, I think it would have reached a different conclusion than Julie Davis did watching it from the subtitles. Um, Do you think when they show it streaming, you should have a choice of Julia Davis's script or what the original script that was? Be, that that would be quite nice. Yeah, it would be yeah. interesting to see just how different it is. Because if you watched it just as the gibberish, and the improvisers in the room know this, you can interpret what people are saying mm-hmm. and what they're doing in mm-hmm. so many different ways. Yeah. And it's really... It's a really tough skill to do gibberish well. One difference between this and that particular improv game is that normally that has an interaction between the people doing gibberish and the person narrating. Mm. So the people perform a thing with gibberish and then the narrator says what they think they said. The person doing gibberish will go on and they now can build upon what the narrators said they were doing. Yeah, it would be interesting to see any behind-the-scenes footage of it to see whether Mm. the director of the film was kind of going along these lines as well and kind of seeing a tone or seeing something that looked like an argument was developing and maybe they went for that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but every scene's got a tone and a mood and things that you can interpret. Yeah, it's just, a, it was a really interesting thing to watch, but there were also lots of funny jokes about adult yeah. nappies and Jermaine being so naked <laughs> and things like that. that obviously, it's preying on your mind. <laughs> I mean, um, only a third was, chapel would come and extract look, it somehow. It was a big screen. Um, <laughs> uh, it, oddly, it all sounds a bit like the magic roundabout. I was literally about to say <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. What kind of childhood did you have? Well, the magic you roundabout. You got to see all of the <laughs> Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, the, the magic roundabout was recorded in French by Serge Dano and then. Um, um, what's she called? Eric Thompson. Eric Thompson, Eric yeah. Thompson's Emerson father. Thompson's dad then wrote his version of what was being said and wrote a narration, but never actually found out what the original French was. Interesting. So it's quite a, yeah, a it's weird quite parallel. Similar, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So um, that is New Tuesday. How mm. many splooded bloods out of <laughs> would you give it? Um, I would give it the numer out of which works out at about eight out of ten. Ah. Um, 
Uh, probably not for everyone, but if you like the New Zealand style of comedy, that kind of quite mm-hmm. gentle, laid back thing, that tone is very much there, even if they're not speaking New Zealandish. And if you like cock, it's good to a night. <laughs> I mean, absolutely, yes. If you, it's not just Jermaine's. You get to see everyone in the film. Uh, if you want to see Officer O'Leary from Wellington Paranormal, you can see all of her as well. Um, so there are lots of recognisable you know, faces and other bits from <laughs> other New Zealand things you've seen. If you just like foreign language films with groovy subtitles, Andy, uh, this film would be you from that point of view. Um so yeah, it's got it's got a lot to recommend it, and it's definitely worth a watch. When's it coming to movie? I don't know when it's coming to movie. It should be coming to the movies quite soon. Now that it's it came out in New Zealand a few months ago, and has made its way over here as of last week. So hopefully it'll be getting a wider release, either cinema or streaming, before too long. It sounds fascinating. I think I'd like to see that, if if only for um, the experiment of it all. But it <laughs> I thought could you were well going to say the cock. <laughs> Also for the cock, of course. Can we put our clothes back on now? Yeah, all right. Okay. It's quite cold. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell. Is that your excuse? <laughs> <laughs> that is all for this episode of Nerdfest. Thank you very much for listening. We will be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, uh, follow us, not too closely, of course, there's laws against that, on uh, social media. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. John, you're a very kind, very giving person. I am. Would you like to offer our fine listeners a reward for giving us a positive review? I'm going to wait until Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what Tuesdays are. I'm going to come round, I'm going to knock on your door, and then I'm going to make love to you all night long. Whilst speaking gibberish and Dan stands at the side translating exactly (laughs) what I am saying. Until next time, you've been listening to... A man who doesn't want to sleep for another 30 years until we get some more Sandman. A man who would like to start Nerd Tuesdays with all of you lovely people. But also nude. (laughs) A man who's still trying to find his chopper for Nude Tuesday. (sighs) A man who is saying, fuck the Olympics. (laughs) And fuck you, Sebco. Well, that's, that's true, actually. And a woman who has a very normal amount of rage. <laughs> My God, you've gone green. Yeah. Where did you get that spandex? I know, and I've had a blow dryer. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Why are we still nude? (laughs) (laughs) Still Tuesday, isn't it? (laughs) Anyone ever been nude on a Wednesday? No, never. You're not allowed to be. It's against the law. It is. Mm -hmm. Who says so? Judge Dredd. (laughs) He is the law. (laughs) The the book of Ashanti. (laughs) How many lawyers are around this table? Eleven. Half. (laughs) Half.